Welcome to today's podcast for the Future of Insurance podcast series. I am really thrilled today to have Brian Falchak, who is a author of a new book that has just come out called The Future of Insurance from Disruption to Evolution. And Brian is also a managing partner at Insurance Evolution Partners. Now, Brian, I got to tell you, I'm thrilled to have you join here. You know, we were introduced by Rob Galbraith some time ago, but I love the title, The Future of Insurance, because that's what we talk about all the time here at Majesco. So it's welcome. perfect. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> when we met through Rob, I think we've met before. Yeah, we were at a conference together. Yep, yep. We were at, I think it was ITC actually. But why don't you give a little bit of background on yourself and then why did you write this book about the future of insurance? Sure. So I'm a PNC guy. I spent 20 years in the industry on the carrier side or consulting to carriers. I spent some time at McKinsey in their insurance practice as well. But I've you know been around different functions, different geographies, different kinds of and sizes of carriers. I was a chief claims officer or COO. Like I've seen a lot on the carrier side. And then I joined an insure tech, not a carrier, an insure tech enabler to help carriers. And through that process, I started to hear that some of the things I was feeling on the carrier side are really universal. And those are feelings about being stuck and feeling like, you know, we've got all these constraints that we face, whether it's culture and politics or some of the legacy systems that maybe we have in place and just pain from dealing with some of those things in the past and the presumption that we can't do anything, coupled with this external pressure from customers and from some newer generations of carriers that, you know, customers want to interact differently. And for some of these new carriers, they don't have a lot of the same constraints. There's still regulation and things like that, but, you know, maybe they're started by software engineers and people who don't have, you know, a hundred years of the the cultural baggage that we're feeling on the incumbent carrier side. And I kept hearing the same thing that we're stuck, we can't, you know, we're too far behind. And yet some are. And that became the story that you know, I was able to tell in my own capacity in this in the startup, in my sales capacity, to help those particular carriers, but I wanted to tell it more broadly. And that's where the idea for the book was born is Let's talk about the situation we find ourselves in and let's look to examples of carriers who have done things to break through those barriers, those handcuffs, whatever you want to call them, to be able to innovate and evolve despite all those constraints and in response to what customers really are demanding these days, uh, you know, in terms of a new way of doing business with them. Can't agree with you more because we see that a lot too, because we're working with both existing insurers as well as a number of uh, startups, whether yeah. uh, they're a full stack insurer or that it's an existing insurer that's got a, a new kind of business unit that they're going to introduce an innovative new product or, a, you know, an MGA, those that are really uninhibited by their current processes and their current business models really have the ability to really get out to market so much quicker and really test some things to see whether or not it's really going to be effective or not. And in a cost-effective way, it's just, yeah. it changes everything. Yeah, completely. So in your book, you talk about uh, the first disruption, you know, that led to the rise of incumbents. Expand on this. I joined the industry as the internet was becoming a thing. It was a very interesting time, especially if you were in the agent or broker space. And the theme hasn't necessarily changed for them. But back then, the war cry was really, really strong that it was like, sound the the bell, agents and brokers are dead. This is going to be the end of them. Everything's going to go through the internet, exchanges and aggregators and whatnot. And of course, that's not what happened. Uh, it's not to say some of those things aren't around today. And, and a lot of them actually are focused on helping the agent and broker 
channel or maybe being a conduit for them to access other markets. But what was going on in 2000 was like, this is the end of days for them and you need to get on board with these exchanges. I don't think a single one of those exchanges or maybe not more than a couple of them are still around today. And of course, the agents and brokers mm -hmm. are. And the ones who aren't, it's just because they merged with someone else or because the channel died. So that was disruption number one. And while it, it changed a lot of how we do business, like definitely the way people bought and serviced insurance changed you know, online quote and bind and servicing your policy and payments, all that, those things all came into the market and that was different. But what it, it never really did was threaten the existence of carriers. The focus was really on distribution. Today is different. Today is, is not, yeah, there's still lots of distribution talk and, and other enabling technologies. You know, I was a, a claims guy. So all the talk about drones, when those were coming out, you know, every adjuster at every conference was like, what's going to happen to my job? That's the only questions when they'd open up the floor was from people who were like, do I still get to work tomorrow? So there's, you know, there's still been disruption, but the real disruptive threat or the different disruptive threat to carriers is these new carriers. And it's not that having new carriers is a new thing. We've always had startup carriers, but they were really like legacy style startups, same kind of structure and systems and all that kind of stuff. The current generation of startups is coming with a cleaner slate and they're coming tech first and they're starting with different ways of, of doing that customer interaction. Maybe they're changing a bit of the product and the structure of it and the way it's delivered. That's new. And carers haven't had that level of disruption is such a, a trigger word, but that level of disruptive threat, it doesn't mean it's going to put them all out of business. So mm -hmm. that's another discussion in the book, but it is really different and it is in direct aim at the incumbent space in the market. So do you remember, I remember back in the um, early 2000s, I was at Accord at the time. Remember when Progressive came onto the scene and everybody kind of poo-pooed the whole, you know, driving around with the vans, you know, for yeah. the Progressive, you know, claims uh, type of event. But it was very different and they got a lot of profile media because of what they did. Obviously that's evolved and changed, but you know, they were pretty disruptive and they were pretty innovative, but they still embraced that agent channel as well. Yeah. But, you know, they've really tried to kind of keep out there at the leading edge. And, you know, there's like one or two of them out there that are kind of like that, that now have really kind of evolved into powerhouses, so to speak. But we really did not see that many new insurers come from a startup, so to speak, back then. Uh, you know, that we're now seeing today, quite array of different uh, insurers that are now actually valuation wise, um, <laughs> bigger than many of those traditional insurers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it happens in lots of industries. Tesla has become the most valuable car company in the world. Yeah. And for some reason, I just don't see them being worth more than Toyota right now, but it doesn't mean they're not cool and all that. Yeah. The valuations I, I kind of set aside because there's lots of things driving that. Some of it real, some of it not, some of it hype. I do think it's interesting what we'll get out of this, whether you want to you know, subscribe to everyone's going to be buying insurance from a company named after a drink or not, doesn't really matter. The point is there are things that are going on that are different in the product space, in the delivery space that as an industry, people are waking up to. And so I think that's where going from the idea in, in the subtitle of the book, From Disruption to Evolution, that's what it's about, is we don't yep. have to just sit here and be made irrelevant, stand by the same old way we've always done things when customers want different. And now there are entrants who are providing them that different experience. We can change. Yeah. And it's evolution to me. It's not revolution in the sense that 
the notion of insurance doesn't go away. Even, you know, Rob Galbraith, his book, The, the End of Insurance as We Know It, is a very provocative title, but it's not actually the end of insurance. It's a lot of aspects of it. And so it's going to look and feel different, but there will still be some form of risk, risk transfer, you know, some way to protect people so that they can get their yeah. lives back together if things go wrong, or they can go about their business without having to worry about the risk that, you know, without coverage, they really couldn't operate. I think those things will be maintained. It's a question of exactly what that looks like. And it's like personal auto. If everyone is sharing autonomous vehicles five minutes from now or whenever that ends up happening, you wouldn't need personal auto insurance. That doesn't mean those vehicles out there don't have some form of coverage. So there will still be insurance on autos. It'll just look and feel different. So there, you know, and that's a huge change, but there are changes coming, some big, some small but they're not going to happen in an instant. And so as we keep our eyes open, we'll start to see some of these trends and, and can adjust in time. Speaking of auto insurance, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here because that is one of the pieces of research we just published about mm-hmm. a month and a half ago. I think, you've, uh, I think you read it. We actually uh, went out and we surveyed consumers, small SMBs, and talked about auto insurance. And what's yeah. very interesting is your point is absolutely spot on. Auto insurance is still going to be around. It's just going to be different. But the bigger question, and I think this goes to, I think what insure techs have really, from my perspective, has really taught us is that it is no longer just about auto insurance. It's about creating a holistic experience. And are mm-hmm. you going to want to own the customer relationship? And if you do around auto insurance, that means that you probably have to broaden your sphere of, of thinking to mobility. Yeah. So it's going to be more than just buying auto insurance. I'm also going to use that vehicle to uh, be a driver for Uber Eats or for DoorDash, or I want to also order a ticket on the train. I want somebody to help make my life easier and yeah. give me an experience that includes all these different aspects. And we're seeing that happen in other countries with some other startups. Yep. But I think that's the piece that InsureTech, in my opinion, has really taught us. It's an outside-in perspective from yep. the customer first. And it's that don't get caught up in all of our assumptions about insurance and the business of insurance that we've had for decades, if not centuries, you know, built around that, that we really have to step outside of our, our zone of comfort and really think about it in terms of the customer. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you said it perfectly. A lot of this is about perspective and perspective ultimately is, is a choice. We can stand where we are and say that something's ridiculous or, you know, we can choose to step outside and look a bit more creatively at the same problem. And it's actually a lot of fun. Well, mm-hmm. it could be scary. It's incredibly interesting stuff. And as much as any you know report out there from analysts looking at like autonomy is going to predict, you know, five years from now, it isn't going to be that fast. The average age of, of a car on the road in the U.S. is 12 years. So you do need a almost complete, if not very material proportion, majority of the vehicles to be autonomous before you really get to that state. Yep. So there's going to be warning. The worst thing you can do is sit back until that point and then say, oh, you know, we're fine. for We'll figure it out when that happens. I worked with a carrier who was sitting on f- six times the reserves and surplus as their policy, as their premium base. They were about 50% overcapitalized and they were losing, they were writing at like a 130, 135. And they still had reserve releases from past years, but it was going down. And anytime you try to talk to them about like, why don't we use some of this excessive money 
to change the business, to fix some of the problems, to get ahead of the curve, to invest in things strategically. And their response was always like, oh, we've got so much extra capital. Our regulators are going to make us dividended out. So, you know, we'll just, we'll just wait. Or, yeah, you know, sure, the reserve releases are going down, but we've got still so much money, it doesn't matter. And we've still got seven, eight years before that's really an issue. That's probably why you should be thinking about it now. Because if you wait until seven or eight years from now or until your regulator says, okay, give back a billion and a half, and then you're undercapitalized, What's AM Best going to do? What's going to happen to your rating? What's going to happen to your ability to invest in anything going forward? So the notion that it's not happening expressly today, that doesn't mean you don't have to do anything. Today is exactly the day to start thinking about it, to start making some of those early moves so that you can watch with a front row seat or participate in that transition. Because then you'll be prepared for it and you stay relevant. You can't react late because other people will beat you to tie into that whole perspective is that across the industries, including insurance, we've been talking about the millennials forever, thinking that, oh, that's out there in the future. Well, they become the dominant um, buyer in the next year over uh, Gen X and boomers. And within five years, uh, the Gen Z joins them and it completely flips in massive dominance. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And when you think about that, You've got one to four years to try to figure out how are you going to capture that next generation of customers that are so different in their thinking and in their lifestyle and how they interact and their expectations. And we don't have that much time because these types of projects, you're going to fail on some, you're going to succeed on some, but you've got to iterate it and you've got to start now. If you don't, you're really going to be sitting, uh, sitting back and you're not going to be able to catch up. Would you agree with that? Yeah, completely. I think one of the things that I've found carriers take pause on is because they think these projects will take so long, I can never start. Not to get too personal, but I've lost 100 pounds in my past and then I had to lose a bunch again because like a lot of people, I gained a bunch of it back. But I'm stable now. But when I lost the 100 pounds, probably seven, eight years before I started to lose the weight was this strong intention and desire to lose it. But every day I'd get up and be like, it's too much. I can't. And I do hear a lot of that, like, it's going to be so expensive. It's going to take so long. And yes, there are things that will be expensive and will take a while. But the tools that we have at our disposal today are materially different than they were even two or three years ago. So we have more flexibility. We have more ways to deploy things in a lighter touch way through APIs, even through having something standalone that's deployed through the cloud. You know, I always hear, oh, that's another screen or people can't deal with it. Well, yes and no. What you should do is, first of all, ask them. And second of all, see if there's a net gain because it may make life so much better that it's worth them having another tab to click into. You don't have to integrate everything at a very deep level in a huge project. So before you swear anything off because it's too big or too long and so we'll never do it, now is actually the time to do some of these these experimentations. And because they're cloud deployed and using APIs so often now, you can play around, you can pilot things, you can do it on a small scale and test and refine and reiterate. You don't have to go big bang or think of it as this painful, you know, excessive process that frankly is going to cost three times what you budgeted for and it's going to take 10 times longer and everyone's going to hate you for it. And those days don't have to still be here. Talking about technologies, you know, four or five years ago, we talked about emerging technologies. Nearly all of those technologies are now maturing technologies. 
you know, we now talk about next generation types of technologies. What of those maturing and next gen technologies are you really excited about for the potential transformation and in innovation insurance? Yeah. And how do you see ecosystems fit in and in that innovation of insurance in the future? Yeah. Well, so one of them is, I'm kind of going to cheat in this answer, but it's not really a technology. And actually, none of the, the things I talk about in the book ultimately are about technology decisions. But one that I think is incredibly important is partnerships. That's what ecosystems are all about, ultimately. Absolutely. You see, you've seen some announcements in the U.S. recently around like auto OEMs getting together with particular carriers for some of their smart car and connected car features. That's brilliant you see way more going on in Asia. And I, I was just talking to folks in Nigeria. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people in the US or Europe would necessarily think of Africa as a hotbed for innovation in financial services yet. But I'm looking at something that they have on all of us that Asia had to an extent, but Africa even more so. People's first phone was a smartphone in many cases. Their first and perhaps only computer is a smartphone. That materially changes the whole notion of what and how people want to transact. And you can immediately move to digital and distributed, and they're used to apps, and they're used to apps that talk to other apps. And so I think there's some groundwork being laid outside of the U.S., um, outside of Europe, that we should be looking to in these markets about, well, who do you partner with and what could work? Because we have a, a time lag behind... Africa and, and Southeast Asia and the, the rest of Asia where they were mobile first. So I think that's actually going to be a teaching ground for us that will show us what are the kinds of things to piece together and should we start to play with. So partnerships are, are the big one to me. And I think there's enough examples out there that we really need to start experimenting and they're not all going to work and that's okay, but you still got to try. It's that minimum viable product and uh, iterate quickly and either succeed or fail fast. Yeah. And learn from it. It's mm -hmm. it's not it's for some for some companies. There's a sort of like we failed, so bury it and let's not talk about it again and celebrate the winners. But you look at like the subscription model in the auto industry. Pretty much every manufacturer has had some attempt at it, or maybe half of them. Volvo's the only one I know of that's actually had some real success to the extent that like they couldn't meet demand. I don't know financially how it's worked out, but every other company who's done it has pulled back on it. I still don't know that the subscription model works or works yet. I mean, don't forget, it wasn't that long ago that no one would subscribe to music and that's why Apple is so successful. <laughs> yep. Uh, and all their competitors who did subscription do not exist anymore. And now everyone, including Apple, is primarily subscription driven. And, you know, heaven forbid you try not to subscribe to music with Apple. All they'll do is sell you on Apple Music. But so, you know, things change. So that's the kind of thing where like, look, that's not successful, but every car maker has talked about what they've learned from it. And you can be like, yeah, they're just putting, you know, shiny bow on this failure. But I think actually they probably have. They've learned about people's preferences. They've learned about what you need from a service delivery standpoint. They've learned a lot of things and they're not done learning. But I do believe they've been finding things out from experimenting in that. And they're things they never would have had a chance to see if they didn't do it. And I, I think we've got enough examples of possibilities for that. Like you mentioned Progressive, they mm -hmm. were way ahead of everyone for pay-as-you-go, you know, use-based yep. insurance in auto insurance. And it really wasn't a success. And it's still a small part of the market, but outside of commercial lines where you could mandate that you know these dongles get, these uh, OBD2 port dongle things get plugged in on every piece of fleet equipment, 
it really hasn't been this runaway success. And there's a lot of reasons for it. But I'll tell you something, if you're playing in that, there's huge things you learn. I just talked to a carrier last week who most people stop using the, the device after like 90 days because they stopped caring and either their behavior changed or it didn't. And then the novelty wore off. But what they realized is it's the first 90 days. That's all that mattered. And there are huge benefits to it. It changes the driver. It helps them to identify better drivers who happen to stick around longer because the prices are better. Like there's all of these things that they figured out by getting over that, like, oh, we don't think anyone's going to do this or look at failed. No one's kept using it. If you just look at- The other data. (laughs) Yeah, it's everything else. And it's like, okay, well, if people stop using it at day 90, did you track what happened at day 490 in their policy or 1,090? So there's longer term things that you can start to see, but you have to be willing to experiment. And that's one thing, you know, I would give Progressive a lot of credit for their, their willingness to try things that other people, and when they were showing competitors quotes online, people were like, you're crazy. That's the stupidest thing we've ever heard of. Look, even some of them, they show people cheaper than you. There's a lot of really smart decision-making and learning behind the scenes in that. And I think, I think as an industry, we're waking up to it, but that still is a willingness that needs to expand. Yeah. So we started off kind of talking about, you know, that the, uh, the first disruption was really the rise of the incumbents. What do you see as the next evolution of insurance that we both call the future of insurance? Yeah. So I think, well, I think a lot of it's still unknown, but I think it it is about insurance not being this discrete stand. I mean, back to the partnership point, this like standalone discrete thing that's just, it's an annual, maybe six month policy. That is a static thing. I think where insurance will move to is much more of a partnered up, multifaceted, maybe piece of a puzzle instead of its own thing. I think it will be much more responsive to the situation. You know, whether that's you're you're in the gig economy or even if you're not, but your coverage is switching on and off based on your engagement with it. I think there will be much more information flow. And that's that can allow for better pricing. But what it also means is the biggest problem in insurance is the opacity of what the risk actually looks like. So for the insurer, they're making a lot of assumptions about the exposure because they have to. They can't see it all the time. They don't know what's going on. They don't know if the credits they gave you should really have been given or if the debits are unfair. As more information is shared, whether that's through IoT or your mobile device or whatever, um, or partnerships where the partners know things, as more information is shared, that exposure becomes a lot clearer. And your ability to respond to changes in the exposure, including a loss, is materially different. I think that's really where it's heading. Because if the insurers have a clearer sense of what the risk actually is in real time, the price will more accurately reflect that. And so for insureds, I don't know insureds who walk around being like, I don't pay enough for insurance. Like even if you've gotten all the value, you know, you had a great claim experience, you still are like, oh, I got to pay this bill. Like no one enjoys paying for insurance and wishes they were paying more. When you understand the connection between the risk and the price, it's a lot harder to feel cheated. So I think on both sides of that equation, the perceived value of the insurance goes up dramatically. So ultimately, I think that's, it doesn't mean people like paying for it, but they'll understand it and they won't feel, you know, a lot of people feel cheated out of paying their insurance every year or cheated by paying it because they get nothing for it. You hear that conversation over and over, but if you understand where it's coming from, it's a lot easier to be like, yeah, you know, I wish I still had that thousand bucks in my pocket, but I understand it. I get why. Oh, I did this over here. That's why it went up or down. And I can change my behavior and, and get a different result. Yep. 
So, you know, in your book, you have some case studies in your book. A lot of them are really interesting, but in many ways, many of them are, are really becoming table stakes, you know, yeah. for companies to compete. And so, you know, which ones really stand out, you know, from your book or separately, maybe somebody else that you're working with, uh, you know, that you really see that are really redefining insurance and, and the different ways that you just have talked about from disruption all the way through um, evolution. Yeah. Well, so um, when you said some of them are really interesting, I was like waiting for you to be like, but some of them aren't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Some of them are just table stakes. It's kind of like, that's what's expected now. So look, this this is book number one. I do expect there to be others. So FYI, if you're a carrier who's interested in telling your story and you want to open up, I'm, I'm all ears. What I wanted to achieve with this was not to call out, these are the you know, there's seven cases. So here are the seven technologies that will change our industry. You got to get on board because I don't, I don't know if we're ready for that. And I don't know that anyone actually has the right or the knowledge to say what those things are. And they're going to be different case by case. So I didn't want to write that book. What I, for, for those who don't know me outside of insurance, I'm a self-help author. And so this is my first officially non-self-help book, but it really is a self-help book because I'm trying to help the industry figure out how we can move forward. And that does boil down to seeing a situation like my, my style in all of my books, self-help or insurance or you know, business, whatever. It's let's look at someone who's struggling. Why are they struggling? How does that resonate with me and what I'm going through? Let me watch them get through it. And maybe there's some inspiration I can take that I can bring into my own world to move ahead. And that's really the intention of these cases is there's seven carriers that all have different dynamics going on, different constraints, different things they're trying to solve for. The purpose isn't for you to look at, like I always use this example because it's really discreet, but CNA and shift technologies working on fraud is not to call that out as like, if you're facing fraud, you need to do exactly what CNA did in the same way CNA did it. That's not the purpose. You may not be working on fraud at all, and this case may still resonate for you. It's about the situation, the way that they engaged in moving forward, and then those lessons that come out that should help someone reading that particular case say, oh yeah, that that's really similar to what we went through. Um, or for you to see something that is so outlandish from a constraint model that it makes you feeling like you can't seem kind of overbaked. So like I always call out the state compensation fund of California. Um, they're a state entity. So when you talk about, oh, we've got really bad politics that are like, they literally have politics because they're part of the state government. So they got you beat on that one and their staff's unionized. So they have civil servants and union employees in their staff, which means that that can be very complicating from a change standpoint because the union has to sign off on any change that you want to make that affects the people. So there are complications that they're facing. If you say, you know, oh, our people are, are risk averse or they don't like change. Like, that's great. Skiff's got the same kind of folks and they're unionized. So not only are they not you know, not necessarily open to change. They need the union to say yes to anything they're doing, including things that may mean, you know, we're more efficient. Do we still need as many people? So, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that? Um, The point is to raise those complications. So people might say, okay, I understand what I can do to move forward. So they, a lot of them are table stakes or some that are, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit more because this wasn't about the technologies per se. Because as an industry, we have to wake up from this point of feeling too constrained to do anything or too far behind. And that's what this version of the book is supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I think that ties right into your moving forward section. I I personally really like that because in our research, we um, have really been kind of tracking where 
when we survey the insurers in the industry, do they know all of the different trends kind of happening? And if they do, how many of them are really planning around doing th- some things, whether it's partnerships, it's technologies, yeah. you know, new products, models, whatever it may be. And then going from planning then into actually doing, and it may not work the first time, but at least they're doing something. Yep. And so what we ended up kind of defining it as is that it was laggards, followers, and leaders. And that's really kind of what your moving section kind of talked about. And I think as we kind of come into the end of the summer and we're going to be moving into the fall where everybody's going to be looking at their next year planning uh, process. I think that insurers need to really begin to kind of step back and figure out how they can really begin to kind of experiment and do some of this and not wait for seven years as we talked about earlier. So what are your recommendations for them to move forward? So I think there are some cultural changes that most carriers need to put in place. And that's, that's the key focus for the book. And I think it starts with the leadership team um, really looking at how open, how open and empowering you are, how open you are to your staff, how open you are to your customers and how much you've empowered your staff to make those changes. So that's usually the most important place to start. And this takes a bit of honesty that I think some folks will struggle with. They'll give themselves credit where maybe, as much credit shouldn't be given. So maybe ask with humility, ask your people and listen to what they tell you about how open you are. And that can help point to some places to change. And that was a consistent theme in all the cases is how much the leadership really took themselves back out of the picture to make space for those on the outside and the other people on the inside who were living it day to day. So I think that's the starting point. And with that basis, you can then figure out what you specifically need to engage in from a technology or customer experience or or both standpoint. When you empower your team, all of your people to engage in that conversation, to find the opportunities and to actually figure out the solutions and implement them, you start moving ahead really rapidly. And most importantly, in ways that are meaningful, it's not enough to be fast, it has to matter. You really... I think you feel that in these cases because those are teams that are truly empowered to figure out how to make things better. I've been at lots of different carriers, either as an employer or consultant, and I hear so many who talk about how empowering they are and non-hierarchical and all that, and I will tell you the vast majority aren't. They mean well, but there's more you got to do. And when you do get to that place and you're open and honest with your staff about what's going on, you really do. I mean, Magically is probably too strong of a word, but you really do unlock an ability to figure out where do we need to go and how are we going to do that? And chances are the CEO or the C-suite does not have those answers. It's the group. Yeah, it's the group. And like those people are living on the front lines with the systems that, you know, are frustrating them or they wish they had newer or different tools at their disposal. They're the ones hearing from the insurers and the agents and the brokers, seeing the quotes from the competitors that they're trying to compete with. I mean, they have the research every minute of every day. And if you're not willing to listen to them on that, you're going to miss something. What's interesting to me though, is I'm, you know, we all have the research and we all have a lot of information, but I'm not sure that everybody's really synthesized that information into what does it mean for us? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Kind of wrapping this up, two last questions. Where do you see the, uh, the industry in the future, say in the next three to five years? And then if you could pick one word or phrase to describe that future of insurance, what would it be? So where do I see the industry in the next few years? I think that 
a lot of the players will be the same. I think some of the the market shares will be different, but I don't think it's going to be a case where, you know, the the companies we look to as the leaders in PNC today from a market share standpoint will be gone, you know, and replaced by new new names. I think there will be quite a bit of acquisition of some of the new players. And that's an interesting one to watch because it the question is, do you just buy them and sort of put that competition away or do you bring it in and really invigorate your change your ability to change from that so that's kind of the the test i want to watch for is i'm sure there will be acquisitions of some of the startup carriers and the really cool things that they're offering on the market so then the question is what happens to those new approaches and solutions i think it's if if i had to come up with one word i would say unclear but that's not a great answer but i think that's kind of the reality is it's easy to sit in judgment and on either side of the, the insure tech equation, either looking at legacy carriers and calling us all stupid and you know we, we don't get it and we're going to die, which I hear plenty of that at ITC. Or the flip side is viewing the startups and saying they don't understand insurance, they're not going to make it, it's, it's a flash in the pan, you know, their valuation is going to crash down, the results are bad, whatever, the judgment on both sides. I think the reality is both have value there's interesting things to watch for. It's not totally clear how it's going to play out. But this, unlike 2000, I think this is a very strong point of change in the industry. A lot changed coming out of, of the early 2000s, but not like right now. And I think the biggest driver of that is on the customer side because customers were changing, but lots of things in their life were still kind of disparate, offline, non-responsive, non-digital. That's not the case today. Um, you talked about the generational shift. So while it's unclear, I think it's unclear, but moving really fast. And you can't expect us as an industry to get a pass from consumers anymore. So now is the time that actually we do need to change and it's already started. Couldn't agree with you more, Brian. Did I dance well, around answering your question well enough? Oh, you, did, you, you danced really well, Brian. You danced really well. So it was great speaking with you today and wish you all the best with this first Thank book. You, and I'm looking forward to the second book. And hopefully sometime in the next year, we'll be able to see each other face to face again yeah. sometime soon. It'd be very good to share it, share with you in person again and, and share with others because it's really cool stuff to get talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I love to talk about this stuff and um, it's, I don't think there's been a more exciting time in our industry than it is right now. And the opportunities yeah. are endless. Yeah. Yep. So once again, thanks, Brian, and uh, look forward to our conversations um, in the near future. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Denise. Thank you.